Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's topic is going to hit a nerve for a lot of us. It's about, is there actually a compound or a medication out there right now that can not only help us to lose fat, but it can also help us to become healthier, to change those underlying metabolic markers like blood sugar, cholesterol, and may even help our brains. Is there something out there right now that can do that? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is. There seems to be. So it's called Ozempic. That's the brand name. Semaglutide is the name of the compound. What is the compound? It is a peptide and it is classified as a GLP-1 agonist. My guest today is Caleb Greer. Caleb is a family nurse practitioner who operates in Austin, Texas, and he is a whiz at this stuff. Caleb and I often will collaborate on my clients together. He's amazing at all these things. One of the topics that we've talked about in the past has been hormones. And as a matter of fact, if you want to know more about Caleb, you will want to check out episode 10 of this podcast from last fall, when we talk about hormones and hormone balancing. He's a wealth of information. He's my own personal Google scholar. Whenever I get stuck on something, I pick up the phone and I call Caleb. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with Caleb from this episode, you can reach him through his clinic in Austin, Texas, and you would email his assistant, whose name is Nate and Nate at austinppc.com. And that would be how you'd get in touch with Caleb. Now, guys, before you run off and do anything crazy, just remember that none of the information in this episode or any other episode is intended for uh, to be taken as medical advice before you start using anything or changing anything or getting your hands on a GLP-1 agonist, whatever it is, make sure that you talk to your physician first and make sure this is right for you and make sure that you get appropriate guidance because these are strong compounds. You need to know what you're doing. There's certain things you need to watch out for to avoid certain pitfalls. If you're looking to get in touch with me, you know how to find me. NatNidham.com is my website. You can find me on Facebook in the Optimizing Superhuman Performance Group. And you can find me on Instagram at Natalie Nidham. And if you get value from this episode, you know what to do. Please leave us a review because those reviews is how we get seen. And by all means, share this episode out with family, friends, and frankly, anybody who you think would get good value from it. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you guys and enjoy the episode. Hey folks, a quick interruption to the episode to thank our sponsor, Drink HLW, who make rejuvenation tablets, which deliver 10 parts per million in 500 milliliters of water of hydrogen to your cells. That's the highest concentration of hydrogen of any other brand. I personally choose this product because this company invests in research. As a matter of fact, to date, they've invested in over 13 human clinical trials with more coming. So what are the benefits of hydrogen? enhanced alertness, reduction in liver fat, improved aerobic fitness, improved muscle recovery. There was even a study on metabolic health that revealed that drink HRW tablets improved 18 of 20 metabolic markers. I personally use it first thing in the morning, and I will often use it at three o'clock in the afternoon as a little pick-me-up. So if you want to give this stuff a try, just go to drinkhrw.com forward slash superhuman, use discount code longevity to save 15% on your purchase. And now let's get back to the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Caleb Greer. It's been a long time coming this one. <laughs> How are you today? I'm good. I was starting to think you didn't want me back. That, well, I'm so going to have you back. I think it's almost been, it's actually probably been a little bit over a year since the last time we recorded, right? Well, yeah. there was the time we recorded where I didn't, we didn't use the episode because we got too oh, deep yeah. in the weeds, right? But the one we did on hormones last year was really good. And today the topic is very topical. The podcast, this episode will air at the beginning of January, which is right about when everybody looks down at themselves and goes, holy jumping, what the, what just happened? Who is this? Happy holidays. <laughs> Happy holidays, everybody. And especially you layer in a little bit of stress and dysfunction from what's going on in the world and you get this beautiful 
amplification effect. So today we're talking about we're talking about a new drug really that has hit the market. I I mean you know better than me how long it's been out in the market. I would say it's bubbled up into my sphere over the last several months, but as you had said in when we were talking earlier, these these types of medications have been around for about 10 years now, but Close. This one, we're talking about it because it falls under the broad umbrella of peptides. And we are talking, of course, of the GLP-1 agonist class. So do you want to help frame this for people a little bit and talk a little bit about yourself, how you, you know, when you started using this stuff, these, these products in your practice and stuff? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I started a few years ago, obviously the, the weight loss issue kind of came up as, as a part of a practice, right? So with, with precision medicine and what we do, you know, in the clinic, obviously musculoskeletal health, pain, all these different things that we were trying to tackle um, came head to head with, well, we have to make sure that the frame and, and the foundation is set appropriately. So how do we get these people to lose weight? And, and, you know, we started doing fasting and prolon and, you know, all these different things with nutrition and so forth. And, you know, a lot of people started to lose weight, but a lot of people didn't. And, and, you know, we'd have people that would fast for, you know, a week every month and, you know, lose maybe five pounds and some people gained weight. So we really had to, to take a different look at what was going on and challenge my biases around caloric intake and, and output and all these different thought processes around how, how diet is involved and how metabolism is, is involved and, and basically how to manipulate it the best way. And, and so this kind of led to the development of my uh, neuroendocrine control and metabolism uh, approach. And, you know, it looks at central energy homeostasis and peripheral energy homeostasis and really takes into account each person as an individual and, mm-hmm. you know, how to really tackle this from the brain down and, and from the peripheral organs up and how to meet halfway. And part of that was, you know, researching into, okay, what can we use to address this central control mechanism? And I started looking into the the GLP-1 agonist class. Um, At that time, the available ones were, you know, exenatide and uh, Trulicity, or or, uh, not Trulicity, well, it is Trulicity, but Dulaglutide, I'll try to stick to generic names, and Liraglutide. And so, Liraglutide was relatively available. So I started, um, I reached out to Novo and got started with uh, some sample kits. um, And I started using them to try and see, well, I had about 30 pounds to lose at the time. And so, you know, I started taking it. It was around COVID starting. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. I didn't have access to a gym. I was just going to do a nice little metabolic reset. And and this kind of evolved into uh, a program that was, you know, revolved around the GLP-1 um, liraglutide at higher doses, which becomes a, an altogether different brand name drug. Uh, <clears throat> so that's interesting too. So beyond that point though, you know, it was really substantial in how it affected my uh, outlook on food, how it changed cravings. And, and of course how it, you know, just kind of seemed to melt fat away. And, uh, and yeah, so I don't know if I got too off track there, but really bad. No, not really. But I, I do think we need to go back and, and clarify a couple of things for people, because you talk a lot about the central control, the peripheral control, the neuro control. And so maybe explain to people a little bit what you're talking about here, about where, you know, and, and I think what, what bears highlighting is your realization, like so many people that it's just not about calories in and calories out for so many people. And I think that, you know, one of the things I've been learning over the last little while is that especially in people who their whole lives have been bouncing around. So they've been losing weight, gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight. And, and it's almost like this overuse of these crash diets, the, they get to their forties, they're even sometimes their thirties, their fifties, certainly, and beyond and their body has become so resistant to, to releasing fat for all of these different reasons that we talk about. And so at that point, having someone just eat less or even eat less and move more, it's just not enough anymore. It just doesn't, it doesn't hit the marks for them. And, and it takes a much more nuanced approach to start to get the brain, which I think is one of the things you were talking about, get the brain to properly respond to the signals from the, the gut and the muscle, whatever it is, everything that's happening in the body and vice versa. 
So maybe you just want to talk a little bit about, because we were talking about this earlier about leptin and CCK, like there's all these different compounds that are being released in the body that in theory are supposed to travel back up to the brain, make, send a bunch of signals that allow the body to then do what it's supposed to do. And these signals just get, they get crossed or they don't, they stop working. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for, for essential control, right, you've got, you've got a few main components. You've got the hypothalamus, which is basically this gigantic control center for energy expenditure, appetite regulation, um, and, and, and body homeostasis to, to, to a large degree that talks with the brainstem, which kind of is the hub for integrating signals from the gut and, and everywhere else and kind of talking to the different areas to then, you know, ultimately provide output to the organs to say, Hey, here's the, here's a demand on our resources for the time being. Right. And here's what we can do with that. Do we need to promote feeding? Do we need to promote energy expenditure to go out and look for um, new resources? Um, and basically, how much can we afford to burn through mm-hmm. in order to meet current demands? So, you know, in, in a perfect world, you have all of these gut peptides that are talking between ghrelin, which is going to initiate meals when your you know, energy stores are getting low. And that's going to promote the hypothalamus to then say, well, we need to start mobilizing resources, promote movement to go out and get food, right? And that's when hunger starts. So then hunger starts to grip the individual and then the person's going to be motivated to go find food. After that happens, they get their food, they eat, the stomach gets expanded, all of these different peptides start to be released to say, hey, we got our meal, insulin's released, leptin is released, GLP-1, CCK, GIP, all these different peptides then go and say, all right, we ate, stop eating, initiate um, meal termination. Mm-hmm. And that goes back up to the brain to say, cool, we have what we need. Here's our energy storage. And then we're going to set our metabolism according to that. So that's basically you know, the control of initiation and termination of food. Now, what happens when you have unlimited access to food in your environment? Which is our world. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's no, there's no mechanism that the brain has to basically say, don't eat if there's excessive food in the environment, because from all intents and purposes and evolutionarily, that is a signal that, Hey, we've got times of plenty. Mm -hmm. Let's store it for a rainy day. The problem is we don't have any rainy days anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have famines anymore. There's no, reason now to maintain the same patterns that we've developed to, to promote survival. So that's when we initiate, you know, different fasting regimes. But before that, you still have to address the metabolism point of view, because if you fast, your metabolism is going to tank. And, you know, there's debate on whether this happens or not, but I've seen it time and time again, where people don't lose weight, they gain weight when they fast. Mm-hmm. And then you compound, you know, knee pain, joint pain. They can't move more because they hurt. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or they haven't exercised in 30 years. And, you know, when you're carrying around an extra 30, 40, 50 pounds and inflamed, it's not the time necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're just not going to be able to move that much. And um, we need to give them, it's almost like you need to give those people a leg up so that they can start to move again. And then, you know, they start seeing weight come off for the first time in 10 years. They're like, oh, I can actually do this. And they they get motivated and they get their positive reward. And it's just a, it's a, it's a snowball at that point. You know, they they get motivated to be a smaller person again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but I think what you said earlier is also really important to hear. And that is that in some people, fasting does not work. Like those, those signals to and from the brain, they get crossed up or they don't work properly. And they don't, it's like you get, you know, you get this, these cross wires that no longer allow the body to burn through its stores when, when the person's fasting. So, and, and yeah. to that point too, like there's, there's legitimate mechanistic data to show that when you fast, ghrelin goes up, uh, you know, the agouti, all the, all the orexigenic peptides in the brain, which mean they promote feeding go up. Right. And those actually inhibit the anorectic or the non-feeding promoting peptides. Right. So 
fasting a hundred percent is going to make you hungry, right? Just because makes me hungry. I'm I, to me, it's a big fat mystery. All these people who say, Oh yeah. When I'm on day three of my fast, I stop being hungry. I'm like, I don't know who you are because by the time I get to day five, I could chew my own arm off. (laughs) Well, you know, and, and to that point too, like when people get to that stage and they start to tap into their fat stores, they have the peripheral energy resources to show that, oh, you know, I actually have enough. I don't need to be hungry, right? right. So once you get through that initial surge of ghrelin and AGRP and neuropeptide Y, all those signals start to reduce because lo and behold, you start releasing more leptin, the sensitivity to leptin goes up, and then you can actually recognize, oh, actually, we're good. Crisis averted. We've got energy stores available to make it through this famine. That's actually one of the points that we have to make, you know, when people transition from that point, that's what people need a lot of help with, right? Increasing metabolism to increase fat output from the adipose tissue to increase leptin and increase the sensitivity to leptin so that they can convert from low basal metabolic rate, high hunger or low hunger, just depending on who they are, and then move into using their own resources and understanding that they don't have to eat because they have enough food to last them for months. Right. But then, so, so the people who stay hungry, is that because the, the brain hasn't made that transition? It's not yes. recognized. Either you're not breaking down your energy stores and releasing that energy into the body for, to be available, or you're just like the brain's not reading it. Yeah. So the process, you know, some people, it just takes a long time to, to tap into ketosis or to use ketones for energy. And so, you know, like when people start these, these programs, a lot of times I have to tell them like, look, you're going to crave carbohydrates. Don't refrain from eating carbohydrates. Right. So even if it's a spoonful of honey, especially when people start working out, they realize quite, quite quickly that this kind of robs you of your juice right? Mm-hmm. Your kind of depletes. I mean, you're, you're just in energy crisis. And until you kind of convert and switch over, just, just like keto flu, just like these different phenomena that people experience when they're doing these different kinds of diets and, and nutritional restrictions, you've got to give your body time. And some people are more carbohydrate dependent than others. Some are going to take a long time to upregulate those transporters and so forth. Um, so, you know, supporting with exogenous ketones, ketone esters, honey, yeah. all these different things to avert these energy crises are important tactics to use when, uh, when, when, when manipulating the systems. Okay. All right. Well, now let's get back to our topic at hand, because what we're really here to talk about today are these GLP-1 agonists that are, right. you know, they're, they're really taking the world by storm, or at least <laughs> this little segment of the world that's actually aware of them, um, which is a growing set. I think it's growing fast. Um, partially because you now have a fairly large pharmaceutical company that's in that's manufacturing two of these compounds and they're going to be pushing it out there. But secondly, because it actually works. And, um, and not only does it help seem to help people to release fat, but it's got a lot of other side benefits at the same time. So, which is, which is amazing because so often, you know, you'll find something that helps you to lose weight but it's going to make you crazy or it's going to wreck your liver or it's, it's got some other side effect that you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. But in this instance, it certainly seems that the overwhelming evidence is for benefit in a, in a variety of ways. And so, first of all, I guess let's talk about GLP-1, which, as you said, is a naturally occurring peptide in our gut. The problem with GLP-1, it's a bit like the Cheshire cat, right? It's here one minute and gone the next. So it doesn't stick around very long to do much. And I guess this is where this is where um, this pharmaceutical company has done the work to figure out how to hack that mechanism with the help of the Gila monster. <laughs> yeah. Gila monster, geez. Uh... Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, you know, we'll just stick with semaglutide for, for, for now. Just yeah. So. Yeah. Let's not get into the intricacies of the lyroglutides and the exaglutide exenatides and whatever else. We'll just stick to one for today. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's, it's based on the GLP one, uh, glucagon like peptide. And, um, there, there are two incretin hormones that basically in response to caloric intake, specifically carbohydrates and protein, they get released to increase insulin output from the pancreas. That's, that's what an incretin is. Right. 
So when, you know, they discovered all these things, they're like, okay, great. Pharmaceutical companies are like, we got to figure out how to mimic this um, to address diabetes and different energy uh, metabolism disorders. So they had these initial medications that would have to be injected twice a day. You know, they worked well, but they, they, they were, they had high efficacy, but they were not efficacious because people couldn't use them to the same extent. It's like using, you know, kiss peptin or these different gonadotropin releasing hormones that you have to do every two or three hours to get an appropriate response. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. No. Or you need so, one of those insulin pumps that Jean-Francois uses that he talks yeah, about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, they, they really tried hard to develop a formulation that was resistant to degradation by DPP-4. And, you know, initially the class of diabetic medications that really targeted this were the DPP-4 inhibitors. So they inhibit the enzyme that breaks down GLP-1. Right. And so by doing that, you know, they prolonged the half-life and had some benefit there, but there were side effects that were significant with that class. So they really went back and looked at how to make GLP-1 last for a longer time. So through various different modifications, liraglutide came out, still half, you know, short half-life, had to do it every day. Um, and, and then, you know, eventually Novo came out with semaglutide, which is Ozempic that is very close to GLP-1 in homology. It's about 94% the same as what we naturally produce, but it's got small modifications that are small peptide modifications that allow it to resist degradation, have, you know, a half-life of three or four days. And so you can do it every week mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. after about three or four weeks. So that was a great um, development in the field. And, you know, one of the surprising benefits was that people were dropping weight like crazy. And so, you know, obviously the A1C lowering effect for diabetics and, you know, all these different changes in in fasting blood sugar and insulin levels was, was fantastic for that disease state. But the fact that they lost so much weight without even trying, right, was, was extraordinary. So of course they did more trials and kind of figured out that, yeah, you can use it for weight loss. And even beforehand, liraglutide was used as a weight loss medication at higher doses, right? Sexenda is what the, the brand name for that was. Um, so that was just hijacking the diabetic medication and using it for weight loss, which is the same thing that's happened with semaglutide being both Ozempic and Wegovy, right? Same drug, just different dose. So what's Wegovy? Is it, it's just lower dose or higher dose? Wegovy is higher dose. It's 2.4 milligrams. I mean, that's the ultimate goal is 2.4. Uh, oh, okay. Per, so yeah, that's what they used in the higher. studies. Yeah, sorry. They worked people up to that 2.4 milligram dose. So that's an important point too, right? You have to work your way up to the actual effective doses because part of the mechanism of action of these peptides is to increase certain neuro, you know, neuropeptides that elicit food aversion responses, right? So this would be CCK and CGRP. People will feel nauseous because those are the same compounds that are released when you get food poisoning, for example, right? So anything that increases these compounds, you know, even migraine, right? That's why the anti-CGRPs are, are available, right? So Anything that has a general alarm signal raises the peptides. They go to the brain and say, hey, there's something wrong here. The signal came from the gut. We need to get it out, right? So okay. it will start to occur. Um, you've also got the gastric emptying that slows down, and sometimes that can be a trigger for, for nausea. So there's a lot of different reasons to take this slow, gradually reintroduce higher levels of GLP-1 to your system. And you know, for some people, they have no side effects whatsoever. Right, they'll mm-hmm. from five to point five to one to whatever they need to go to, and it's not a big deal. Other people I've had throw up for days, right? So it's not something really, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so it's not for everybody, and, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, some people tolerate it really well, some people don't tolerate it at all. That's really interesting. So, one of the things I recommend to people, you know, who've been put on a GLP 1 agonist like Ozempic. Um, as you say, the main way to get it, the principal way to get it is by prescription. And 
it is, you know, one of the downsides of Ozempic is that it is, it's an expensive drug. Um, do you see that changing anytime soon or do you, or is that just Novo making their money back on their investment, which has been significant. Like it's been years in the making this thing, right? It's taken them yeah, a long time sure. to get here. I mean that, and you know, they're, they're paving the way for less expensive alternatives, right? So they did the work, they figured out a lot of this stuff and, and they, they deserve to, you know, name their price. Now, as far as being affordable, like for type two diabetics, it's, it's covered really free, you know? So there's demographics that it's used for that as a provider, we can get it covered. Right. So for people that are doing it for fitness and that kind of thing, it's a different story. And there Mm -hmm. are alternative avenues that we can get the drug for them at, at, you know, relatively inexpensive or free, right. Patient assistance programs and so forth. So, you know, having someone that's been around to navigate these things can, can get you a solution rather easily. Now, as far as getting it cheaply, I don't think it's going to be cheap anytime soon. And I've, no. seen, I've seen both compounding pharmacies and research facilities making the drug. And, and to that, I just, I wonder how long it's going to last slash if they're even the right peptide, because it's not like these are easy things to make. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, to have synthesizing you know, ability can definitely figure out how to do it. It's not rocket science, the patents out there. Um, but at the same time, it's not, affordable to have that kind of machinery. And even on that point of view, it's like, why, why risk it if you can't go and actually test it out and see what it's just what it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are patents on these things and, and eventually Novo is going to come down on it. And and I don't think that's something to, to kind of play with. No. Well, and I think the bigger point to, to your point is even because patents, my understanding that patents have, a lot of information in them, but they're always allowed to hold back a small amount of information that is proprietary. And is it not possible that in that proprietary chunk of information is, uh, I mean, it would make sense to me that that would hold like the trade secret or whatever it is that makes the semaglutide that Novo is making different or work in a certain way or whatever the case may be. Or do you think that's not likely? No, I mean, because the peptide sequence is out there and the modifications are out there. So if you've got the background to know how to make these certain um, modifications on on peptides and kind of add sequences, then, you know, it's not not that big of a deal um, if you have the equipment and the know-how. Um, okay. That's kind of like why like Coca-Cola trademarked instead of patented their thing, right? So if anybody figures out the Coca-Cola recipe, they have it, they can use it. Mm-hmm. They just can't market it and call it that. Okay. Well, let's not, let's not stay on this too long. There's lots more other stuff that more interesting stuff to talk about when it comes to, to semaglutide. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, do you think that because of this slower gastric emptying and because people so often are challenged in their production of digestive enzymes, do you feel that it's, it's beneficial for people to use digestive enzymes when they're using GLP-1 agonists? Yes and no. So on a trial basis, I, I give people digestive enzymes, you know, if they have issues, but you have to be careful, especially if they've had, you know, PPI use, I mean, sorry, um, you know, anti-acid use yeah. in their history, or if they've had any kind of issues with, you know, esophageal, like any kind of reflux, yeah, enzymes can always make it worse, right? So if they've had a gastric environment that's been low acid, and you give them digestive enzymes, especially if it has HCL or betaine or anything that increases stomach acid, their reflux might be worse, right? On the same token, if you give them enzymes when they're eating food, that's going to stay there for a long time, mm-hmm. it might be better to at least have that digested and cause reflux than to be undigested and cause reflux. So, I mean, there's a lot of different avenues to go down. When I give someone digestive enzymes, I say, look, you could have no problem. Digestion could be better, et cetera. Right. If you reflux, right. So if you take them in 30 minutes later to an hour later, you feel like you have stomach acid in your throat, then, you know, either cut back the dose or figure out what you ate with that meal and see if we can manipulate that next time. Mm -hmm. It's not just a carte blanche recommendation to do the digestive enzymes. For sure. For the most part, it, it works well. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I find that I always get better results if I take them 
kind of after I've started my meal a little bit, not before the end of the meal. Like, you know, I mean, your stomach is going to churn stuff up. So it's not like everything you eat is going to sit there like a parfait in a perfect layer kind of thing. Like it's going to get smushed together. But I do find slightly better results and less chance of that kind of reflux or that hyperacidity if they take the enzymes during the meal or, you know, closer to the beginning of the meal during the meal. And it just seems to help. But to your point, it's definitely not a blanket solution. It's, but I, I do think that in a lot of cases, and also because just people don't make enough digestive enzymes in general, um, it can be helpful. So let's, let's go back to GLP-1 and let's talk about all the different benefits that we're seeing or that have been highlighted in the studies, because I think it kind of, it's almost like when you read the paper sometimes, or you listen to people talking about it, it almost takes them by surprise a little bit. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, everybody was trying to lose weight and improve blood sugar response, like insulin secretion and HbA1c and all that stuff. But then there's all this other cool stuff that seems to happen downstream. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's a big piece of why people are so excited about it. Yeah. So, <clears throat> You know, beyond the metabolic benefit of delaying glucose spikes in the bloodstream and, and all that, I think it's really important to recognize that we're increasing insulin in response to the food, right? So mm-hmm. that's almost inverse to what everyone says about food-related weight gain, weight loss, et cetera, right? Everyone wants to almost eliminate insulin right now in, in the world yeah. because of its fat promoting, you know, qualities. Well, I mean, and I mean, bodybuilders have known this for a very long time, but you know, insulin is nearly the most anabolic hormone that we have for both muscle and for fat. So it's really interesting because when you have someone who is insulin tolerant and glucose tolerant, you know, insulin is going to be a great meal terminating sign, right? Insulin goes up. That means you ate. That means we need to shut down hunger, shut down food intake, just like GLP-1 does. So that signal kind of gets restored. Um, it, it's it's kind of a, an interesting phenomenon that I see when people first start, you know, their, their fasting insulin actually goes up um, quite a bit and, and eventually it comes down. But that's something that we kind of have to wrestle with right now in the field because, you know, if people are losing weight despite hyperinsulinemia and, you know, all of the factors that we typically associate with hyperinsulinemia are reversing, you know, like triglyceride numbers and, you know, LDL values and all these different things that we're trying to correlate with metabolic health. Well, all that's improving at the same time, this one marker of, you know, high insulin is going Mm -hmm. down. I think it's going to kind of turn the field a little bit, not upside down, but kind of question the validity of low carb. Yeah. Um, Like chronic low carb. Yeah. 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 Besides that, you know, the effect of GLP one in the, in the brain and, you know, on the brainstem and and the hypothalamus to go back to those two centers is, is spectacular in the sense that the sympathetic nervous system output to fat tissue gets switched on by the agonism of GLP one in the brain. Okay. Say that in English, (laughs) the sympathetic output. What does that mean? So the, you've got your two branches of the sympathetic nervous system, right? I mean, of the autonomic nervous system, yeah. one sympathetic, the other parasympathetic, all lipolytic action, right? So fat burning action yes, occurs from the catecholamines, right? Epinephrine, norepinephrine that get released from sympathetic nerve terminals. Perfect. Thank you. <clears throat> when those, um, neuron bodies get activated in the brain they go down to the spinal cord and they enter into the adipose tissue and the muscle tissue and they instigate fat burning right for fatty acid release to feed other tissues perfect right? and Thank so you. that whole process gets cranked on um, by the glp1 class as a whole um, especially since it's going systemic right it's not depending on glp1 mm-hmm. release from the gut or from yeah. the intestines traveling up to Vegas and doing that whole long route. And also the concentration is also a big deal too, because small amount that you get from eating a meal is not sufficient to generate weight loss in any significant degree. So you inject this stuff peripherally, it goes systemic and it, it super saturates all of those areas and it cranks out sympathetic activity. This is why heart rate increases. 
this is I was going to say <laughs> kind of gets a little bit um, interrupted. HRV tanks, right? There's a lot of different things that you have to recognize with increased sympathetic output, burning fat, and kind of having a higher basal metabolic rate, especially while you sleep. It's important for how this thing works. Right? Mm-hmm. If people take it and they're not under, you know, supervision, they're like, why is my heart rate so high? Why am I sweating at night? Why, you know, why are all these things happening? And it can be anxiety provoking, right? So having people know that that's an important mechanism of how this works, you know, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah, no. And that's a great point. I mean, I will definitely, you know, I've been using a low dose of Ozempic now for, I want to say six weeks, maybe something Mm -hmm. like that. And I've given up, I mean, and, and actually paradoxically, by the time I get to the week and at the end of the week, and this speaks to the three to four day half-life, I will start to see my metrics on my biostrap and my aura start to recover a little bit. Like my HRV starts to recover a bit, but my heart rate, which consistently was in the forties overnight is now consistently in the low fifties. So either aura and biostrap are kind of giving up <laughs> saying, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know. I mean, I can go back and on my aura and look exactly when I started um, liraglutide when I first started, and uh, my heart rate went, you know, from being in the fifties, like you know, like yours, and and now very seldomly does it ever go under seventy. Really? Yeah, as a resting heart rate. I mean, sometimes I'll get to you know sixty six, sixty seven, but and, and my heart rate variability is went from you know seventies to you know low low twenties, teens. Wow. And, and very, very seldomly do I get a spike above that. So, so let me ask you this. Is that, is there anything to worry about if your heart rate is consistently that much higher all the time? Like, is that any cause cause for concern for people? Could that, you know, in 20 or 30 years come back and bite a person or does anybody know the answer to that question? I don't think anybody knows the answer. I mean, we can hypothesize that the more heartbeats you have, the the more likelihood that you're going to have, you know, an earlier not an earlier death, but, you know, a shorter lifespan. But, you know, that being said too, being super fit and having a low metabolic rate because you're just so efficient mm-hmm. is, is not the best thing if you want to lose weight or maintain, you know, a low body fat percentage. So I, I think it has to be taken into context of what your goals are and what you want to do. And, and also measuring surrogates for overall health, right? So, right. I have people go get echocardiograms to see what their, their heart output is or see if they have uh, ventricular hypertrophy or anything we're kind of looking at from the perspective of, am I doing a disservice by doing this right now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're gathering data for that and, and I'm making sure that everything is going in the right direction. But also if you're reversing diabetes and, and dropping you know, right. you know five or six pounds of visceral fat and, and reducing hip and waist ratios and, and all this different stuff, it's like, okay, if I shorten your life by five years by increasing your heart rate by 10 or 15 beats, but you live 20 more years with a different quality of life that was going to be so much better than you were going to have anyway, I don't, I don't know. It seems like a good trade-off if that's even a trade-off. If it's a trade-off, exactly. Because I think you could argue that the, the lower load on your system by not carrying around the extra weight and having fat around the visceral organs and you know, goo in your bloodstream and like, you know, a fatty liver, the whole nine yards, yeah, you can pressure, see that. Systemic vascular resistance, all these different things that are going to reduce as a function of being healthier that, you know, even if your heart's having to work harder all day long with its beats, you know, at least it's getting a return flow that's sufficient for oxygenation and so forth. Hey folks, just a quick message from our sponsor this episode, which is Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. And the timing for this message literally could not be better because how many of us feel like after two months packed with holiday family fun and end of your work obligations, that we might be feeling a little stressed, a little worn out, and maybe lacking a little motivation. And that I think we can all agree is definitely not how we want to start the new year. So if you're feeling like this, if you feel like you need a holiday from your holidays, I have a great solution for you. You can start taking Magnesium Breakthrough every night before you go to bed. 
Why? Because stress depletes your magnesium levels and magnesium is critical for getting deep restorative sleep. The reason magnesium breakthrough in particular is so effective is because it's the only organic full spectrum magnesium supplement that includes all seven unique forms of magnesium for stress relief and better sleep, all wrapped up in a single bottle for you. The challenge is that most magnesium supplements fail because they're synthetic and only contain one or two forms of magnesium, which just can't get the job done. When you get all seven critical forms of magnesium, pretty much every function in your body gets upgraded from your sleep to your brain, from stress to pain and inflammation. Even better, by making magnesium breakthrough part of your daily routine, you'll get to feel fully rested, recharged, and ready to crush all of your New Year's goals. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, just go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash Bionat and use code Bionat10 to save 10% when you order Magnesium Breakthrough. And one last thing before we go, Magnesium Breakthrough, I can assure you, is best in class. There's really nothing else like it. However, if for some reason you feel differently, you can get a full refund up to a full year after your purchase. No questions asked. So recharge yourself and get ready to crush those New Year's goals by going to magbreakthrough.com forward slash Bionat and use code Bionat10 now to get your exclusive 10% discount. And now back to the episode. I wanted to ask you another question. So we know that GLP-1 increases insulin output, which is it's a good thing, right? Insulin, she's, it's putting shit away that needs to be put away. You're not eating as much food. You're not like all the things are, are, are lining up. But what about people who are very insulin resistant? Doesn't, doesn't it also improve insulin sensitivity, GLP-1? Yeah, so when, <clears throat> when GLP-1 binds its receptors, it helps, number one, upregulate glute for transporters. So those are the, the transporters that allow for glucose to enter cells yeah. and then, you know, be metabolized into energy. So increasing glute for translocation is, is one mechanism by which this body is not working as hard to stuff glucose into its cells. Okay. I think initially where a lot of the benefit comes from is the reduction in caloric intake. Mm-hmm. From, from that regard, you know, if, if you just stop eating, your insulin sensitivity will improve. Right. right? So it's not going to necessarily translate to weight loss yet. Right. At least from a metabolic perspective, your insulin sensitivity will improve. Your glucose disposal will improve. You know, the, the, especially if you focus on muscle mass too, which is another end of the, the program spectrum. But, yeah. you know, in and of itself, I think the reason that we don't see a worsening of insulin resistance when you increase insulin postprandially is that overall the meal sizes are reduced. Typically, they don't want to eat the same kind of junk that they typically do. And so mm-hmm. a lot of lifestyle slash, you know, just habitual changes that occur to, to lessen the, the load of that insulin on the body. Right, right. And I do feel that, you know, giving people some coaching around nutrition at this time is a really good idea because, you know, you take someone with horrible eating habits. Well, if they just eat one Big Mac instead of five Big Macs, I mean, overall, they'll be better off. Right. It's still not quite optimal. So yeah. it's, it's, you're still, you're still mm. getting a little hurt here somewhere. So let's stay with the GLP-1 agonist benefits. So we talked about improved insulin secretion, improved transport of glucose into cells, which is automatic. I mean, I would think in a way also, it's going to help people who do work out because you're getting more energy into those, into those cells. And it's not specific to any particular cell, right? It's not going to be like only one type of cell, like skeletal muscle is going to take in glucose more efficiently as well as anything else. Well, so there are different signal transduction pathways that are tissue dependent. Okay. But that's, that's getting way too far in the weeds. In okay. general, let's pull back, pull back. It, <laughs> it, it doesn't promote glucose storage in the adipose tissue, for example. Right? No, so it right. Yeah. We don't, we don't want that. Depends. <laughs> well, not but right now. We don't. As, said, you know, as far as improving, you know, energetic capacity of muscle tissue with athletes, it's, it's a, it's a mixed review, right? Cause a lot of people, when they're starting, 
they get depleted very quickly, right? Their glycogen stores are going low because glucagon's inhibited. All these different right. metrics have to do with basically glycolytic activity is going to suffer, right? So there's, there's a period of time in transitioning, especially when people have metabolic inefficiencies, even if they're healthy, um, that they're going to see a decrease in performance. But I don't think it's, well, I don't know. I feel like for me, interestingly, it's interesting you bring this up because thinking back, there were, there was a couple of weeks there where I, and I wear a heart rate monitor when I work out because I do these, these hit workouts and heart rate monitor wearing is part of it. I couldn't even get my heart rate up for a while. Like, I mean, I had the worst, some of the worst workouts I've ever logged. And yet in the last couple of weeks, I've logged some of the most amazing workouts I've ever logged. And I wonder if, Part of it is conditioning. I've just been more consistent and I've just been going to the gym more. But part of it, I wonder if part of it might be in part this adaptation that's kind of happened over time that's um, that's just allowed things to take off in a different way because I'm definitely seeing very different numbers than I was seeing even before all this started. Yeah, and again, you know, it is sometimes it takes people months, but sometimes it is a couple of weeks, right? It's just the transition of energy um, the utilization of different energy for different kinds of exercise. And yeah. so some people it takes a while. Some people do it very quickly. Um, but by and large, there is a decrease in performance for some period of time after starting this stuff. Okay. Well, that makes sense. All right. So then let's talk about, there's another area that's getting a lot of really cool attention on the GLP-1 agonist and particularly, I think, semaglutide. And that is the brain, which I think is, it's, it's really interesting, right? So, to someone, I mean, obviously, when we, t- and particularly around Alzheimer's. Yeah. And there's some studies going on, clinical trials happening now with Alzheimer's patients, I believe, and semaglutide. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because there's, there's a couple of, you know, there's a couple of red herrings and then, you know, could it just be an improvement in how they're utilizing glucose in the brain and energy to the brain cells? But I think most likely it's going to go a little deeper than that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, from, from the literature we have available in, in the animal models, <clears throat> you know, using GLP-1 in, in, in normal metabolically functioning animals, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it improves learning and memory. And, and mechanistically, we've got to think about, or at least teleologically speaking, like the point of that would be to nail down where food is in the environment, right? To kind of right. remember that, hey, I ate something, I got this peptide released, and then it's going to do some different mechanisms to, to make sure that I remember and condition to where different places are. So you can cue it a little bit, right? So it improves learning and memory on that sense. And, and part of the reason that they showed or, or part of why that happened was because they showed that there was actual neurogenesis. You know, they, they made more neural stem cells in the part of the brain that's responsible for spatial memory, right? The hippocampus. So since that's one of the reasons or one of the regions that gets atrophied with, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's in particular, Mm -hmm. they then went and kind of looked at, okay, well, in models of Alzheimer's, what does administration of GLP-1 do? Right. So they showed that same increase in neural progenitors. And they also showed, you know, for, for whatever it might mean, a reduction in amyloid beta in the brain. Now, whether that's a red herring or not, we're not going to get into. No. The other aspect of what it did too um, was, you know, increase the neurotrophic factors, which can be good or bad depending on where it happens. Um, but also the glucose metabolism in those mouse models of Alzheimer's was relatively reversed. So not only did the mitochondria function better because glucose could be utilized because insulin was working better, all these different things considered with, you know, type three diabetes and Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of those, you know, got better. And so I think there's definitely drug development right now that's utilizing the incretins plus a couple of different, you know, peptides to, to test out in these models. I'm not sure if any of them are human yet. Okay. I didn't get that. Okay, cool. So I, I wasn't sure if there was anything in humans just yet. Um, all right. So, but early indications would say it's, it, there's no downside for the brain right now that we know of, if anything, there might be a bit of an upside. Yeah, definitely no downside. I mean, yeah. you know, again, 
I, I, there's there's definitely um, issues with not eating enough first and foremost. Yeah. And also by not eating enough, having different dynamics of electrolyte balance, you know, with mm-hmm. eating sodium and holding on to fluids and people's proclivity to drink way too much freaking water and dilute themselves. So there's, there's been a huge, you don't hear that too often, actually. That's interesting. Why don't you talk it's, about that a little bit? <laughs> it's so prevalent. There's so many people that drink way too much water and they're not replacing electrolytes to a significant degree and they're getting brain fog and concentration issues and cramping and bloating. And they're like, I don't know what's happening. I'm drinking tons of water. I'm like, well, stop. Well, what about putting, (laughs) what about putting electrolytes in your water? Would that help? Yeah. Well, that's what I tell them to do. So I, I, you know, I say basically a teaspoon or, you know, a gram of sodium per 16 ounces of fluid. And that's basically enough to get them going. And even if it's too much sodium, they just pee it out. Yeah. Right? The the uh, the literature on how much sodium you should do that came from the cardiovascular prevention stuff is actually four to five grams a day. So it's it's a significant amount more than people typically consume, especially if you're doing sauna and red light, different modalities that make you sweat more. And then people aren't replacing their electrolytes. And, and they seem to forget that everything is based on the action potential Right. And the, yeah. and the distribution between sodium and chloride and potassium. Yeah. Right. If, yeah. you, if you don't have those in balance, everything kind of sucks. Yeah. And so it's amazing how fast, you know, you just give somebody some salt and like, hey, I, I feel I feel good. And a lot of the side effects of Ozempic and not eating enough and doing these different things can be mitigated by just increasing salt intake. But that's a paradox, right? Because a lot of the people who are using Ozempic, and in this, I'm thinking even of my mom, who has high blood pressure, who's been told to cut salt out, who's now using one of these, she's not using semaglutide, she's using liraglutide, and and she's been told, cut salt. You said she's on triplicity, right? Yeah. It's dulaglutide. Or dulaglutide. I get them all mixed up. All right. I'm not um, prescribed. But just to be clear, guys, I'm not prescribing any of these things. So <laughs> I get to mix them up. Caleb, on the other hand, prescribes them. He never mixes them up. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, hypertension is an interesting model too, right? So that same study kind of looked at a, a distribution of people that had too low of a sodium. Mm-hmm. And that actually instigates high blood pressure. Harm. Yeah, it's an alarm to the body that, hey, we need to hold on to our sodium, aldosterone goes up, the whole renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system gets activated, sympathetic output increases, not in a good way. So that just increases the phase of constriction. Yeah. So it's a a catch-22 where now I think people are really starting to realize that the whole low sodium thing for hypertension, some people it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Most people it's not. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about working with your doctor and figuring that out to see where you fall into those two camps. Yeah, and it's really simple. I mean, a urinalysis is going to show you what your specific gravity is. You contrast that with serum osmolarity or just looking at your metabolic panel that has your sodium and potassium. Hey folks, just a quick word about a super exciting project I've got coming up this year for the very first time. I'll be co-hosting a five-day intensive retreat, a women's longevity and resilience retreat in beautiful Cabarete, Dominican Republic from March 25th to March 30th. If you want to learn more about this, please go to my website, natnidham.com and click on the retreat tabs at the top of the page. Not only will you learn about your own genetics, but you'll also be learning about your own biological age. We'll be doing live blood cell analysis. We're going to be deep diving into all things biohacking, personalizing it for you. You'll get to have massages, go for hikes, go to the beach, sunrise walks, sunset walks, you name it. We've packed it all in. So to learn more, once again, go to natnidham.com and go to the retreats tab at the top of the page. Also, keep an eye on my Instagram account. I'll be hosting some Instagram lives over the next few weeks so that you can get your questions answered live. That's it. That's all. And I just had to tell you about this really exciting development. Enjoy the rest of the episode. One of the other things also I wanted to highlight is, is again, as people's appetite decreases, paying special attention to nutrient density is really, really key. Because again, and I mean, you know, my poor mom, she's going to be the star of the show here. Um, 
she started losing her hair after a few months. Yeah. And I know that she's not eating protein. Like she just, because she, because her appetite tanked, she's like, oh, I don't want to eat that, you know, or she'll eat, she'll eat vegetables or fruit or whatever it is. And she's become deficient in protein. And now the hair's jumping off her head, literally, like she's become so protein deficient. So I just think it's one of those things that people, again, if they're going to be using these products quite often, I mean, you're the kind of physician that will tell people, you'll kind of give people the heads up, but so many people just get handed a prescription and sent on their way. And I think it's just really important to watch at this point, what you're eating. Yeah, no, for sure. And I just want to clarify, um, I'm a nurse practitioner, not a physician. So right. Wanna... Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No good. No okay. good. Um, <laughs> It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, nutrient density is super important. And so is the acknowledgement that when you're doing this without hormonal support, that you're going to lose muscle mass too. Right. And so yes. that whole the whole avenue of making sure. Now, I always tell people to prioritize protein if they're going to eat a lot less than they need to use something like amino acids, like the map amino acids or collagen, something that you can mix in fluid that you're going to consume anyway, without feeling like you're eating anything. Cause you're yeah. right. I mean, the aversion to most foods, especially dense ones is, mm-hmm. is pretty high. So definitely improving some aspect of protein intake, whether it's beef jerky or liver chips or something like that. And then also making sure that there's enough, bioactive compounds, like through eating, eating some beef organs or doing the supplements like that, right? It's a great yeah. way to, to induce that. The other thing that you have to take into account with hair loss though, is the actual fat loss that you're getting in the subcutaneous space in the scalp, right? So that's an important metric to think about when you're losing all this weight super fast. If it's coming from your scalp, then you're going to lose blood flow and you're going to lose a lot of supply to that hair. I mean, I think you've talked about this before with someone on the podcast. Yeah, I think it was, um, it would have been Ian Mitchell and Tammy Morelia when, with their hair systems product. Yeah, so that's that's important to remember too. So, you know, maybe hanging upside down and getting some blood flow to your head. <laughs> or red light, red light actually is a good one also because it just brings energy to the mitochondria and, and helps to stimulate. But hanging upside down, I, you know, I'm not feeling it for my mom. She's not going to do that. Handstand. All right. So, okay. So so next one is, so the dark side, right? So there is a possibility of a couple of things. One thing in particular going sideways that we've, I've seen it in my group on Facebook. You've seen it with a couple of your patients and that is the possibility of developing pancreatitis. Um, So why don't we talk about that a little bit? It's not I mean, it's not the vast majority of people. The main thing that people complain about is nausea. Um, and in some people, the debates, and in other people, it it doesn't allow them to continue. So just so you know, in the time we have left, I want to talk a little bit about pancreatitis. And then the last thing I want to talk about quickly, quickly is, do people have to be on these things forever or is there a finish line? Got it. Okay, so yeah, pancreatitis, I mean, it's... <laughs> It's a real pain. I mean, because pain being the understatement of the universe, yes, sneaks up on you. I mean, because you can be totally fine one day and then wake up the next day and just have a a hot knife going through the midsection. So it's it's hard to tell that it's happening before it actually happens. So, I mean, one of the things I recommend people to do while they're on this is take oral BPC. I mean, that's just kind of like a mitigation strategy that I like to have. Yeah especially after people started to get a little bit of that stomach issue. So I was like, all right, I'm not even going to deal with this. If you can afford it, take it. If you can't, then we're looking out for it. Yeah. Um, Again, glutamine, going back to the amino acids um, situation is something I recommend too. But, you know, back to the pathophysiology that's happening here, no one really knows why it happens. Yeah. Part of it it could be, you know, the delayed emptying leads to a a delay of the food getting into, into the you know, that first part of the intestine, the duodenum. Yeah. But before that, you're still releasing pancreatic enzymes. And if there's no chyme in there to digest, you know, it could just go back into the pancreas and start to- Like almost like a backup. Yeah. 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 Um, It could be something to do with, you know, excessive production of enzymes coming down from the vagus in response to the GLP-1. I mean, there's just, there's a number of different hypotheses out there, but 
you know, the, the important thing is that it can happen. It's super rare. I mean, again, in, in a few yeah. hundred people, a couple. Yeah. But so, it's still a thing. It can happen. So I just think people need to be aware of that. There's also a very, there's a caveat in the literature um, that you will see in the flyer for Ozempic that speaks to in some of the animal studies they observed in rats, uh, there seemed to be an increase in tumors on the thyroid. Was that? Yeah. So medullary thyroid cancer is a contraindication uh, for the medication. Um, so if people have had thyroid cancer, they're uh, basically you wouldn't use specific medullary thyroid cancer. So medullary thyroid cancer. Okay. Kind of cancer. And it, and again, that's also pretty rare. Um, okay. Even going back to the literature, this is only found in rats. It hasn't been reproduced in people. Okay. Been seen in the amount of studies they've done to date. Now, whether it's going to happen eventually down the road, maybe. I think it's smart for Novo to put it as a black box warning, even though it mm-hmm. kind of will kind of freak out a little bit because if it does end up happening, then at least they said, "Hey, it's it's been on the warning label." Right. Um, it's unlikely to occur in humans. I think one of the biggest differences between mouse and human thyroids are that they have a lot more GLP-1 receptors on their thyroid gland. Oh, interesting. We, we don't. Okay. That's really interesting. All right. So then the last question, and then you're just going to tell people how to get in touch with you if they, if they need to, is uh, the last question is, do people need to be taking GLP-1 agonists forever till the end of time? Or, and does anybody actually know that? Yeah. Well, no one actually knows that. But I mean, if you look back at the studies, once they stop, the weight gain is kind of um, inevitable, right? So <clears throat> people generally go back to eating. It's, it's tough, right? Because what the way that we're doing it, right, is as a lifestyle intervention, we're doing this while they change their habits. Yeah. Using it to manipulate their environment so that they can make those changes without succumbing to, you know, cravings. Yeah. And so, so, you know, I, I think if you're just doing this, then yeah, you'll have to take it forever. Whether it's the same dose or not, unlikely, right? So I have people that have been taking it for you know a year or so, and they they met their goal, right? They're at their weight, they're at their optimal physique, and now they just take a little bit, you know, every other week, every third week. Interesting. Coming up, they'll take some, so they kind of just use it as a literal biohack for their appetite and their metabolism when they know they're going to be a little bit naughty. Right. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And to your point, I think that if we, if people use this opportunity to change their lifestyle, their diet, their way of doing things, and plus all these other things have improved, right? Your insulin sensitivity has improved. You're no longer insulin resistant. All these different things have also changed. You're now playing on a different playing field. And if you pull the right levers and do the right things, you have an opportunity to possibly either not need it or to your point, needing it in very tiny doses on occasion. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, even the way that I use it now is is more of 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 that, and it's you know it's it's a opportunity cost thing for me, right? I've I've got two kids. I want to enjoy the pizza party. I want to have you <laughs> know, ice cream and and enjoy life a little bit, but also you know maintain my vanity and stay under ten percent body fat. Yeah, so it's just like a combination. <laughs> yes, go to Caleb. Have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> I can do it as least as as possible and and get the most out of it. Lovely. I love it. Okay, Caleb. Well, this has been amazing. I know that you've got to run and go see patients. So do you maybe want to share where people can find you or how you work with patients and all that kind of stuff? Because uh, yeah, um, people, so, people will want to know. <laughs> well, I guess we'll see. The, uh, the clinic that I work for, you know, is based in Austin, Texas, and it's precision, regenerative and functional medicine. Uh, I see people on a membership basis now um, that the cost kind of varies, but um, right now I think we're at a, at a hundred dollars a month. Um, we, we do take insurance for most people. If you have it, if we take it, um, but outside of that, you know, that the, the schedule is really, you know, crazy right now with the, with the holiday and so forth, I think our, our first new patient availability is in, in February. So if people are interested, you know, they can reach out to my medical assistant. His name is Nate. And the, uh, the email for him is, N-A-T-E, at Austin, P-P-C, Peter, Peter, Charlie.com. Perfect. Um, so they can reach out to him if they're interested, they have questions and so forth. And then um, 
otherwise, yeah, I'm not really on social media. I have a, I have a social media page for my private um, kind of education consulting company, but I'm never on it. So don't bother. Don't bother. No. And, uh, and I have the pleasure of, of, of sometimes working with Caleb on client, my clients who are his patients. Um, and that's always a really, that's always a fun journey because I find we, uh, we get to pull different levers on different days. And, uh, and it's, uh, I, I hope they think it's as fun as we think it's fun because it totally gets us to bring everything to bear that we both know. But Caleb makes all the difference and they do have the best outcomes because uh, when you have medical oversight and stuff, there's nothing quite like it. So Caleb, thank you again for your time today and for your generosity in sharing information with me all the time. Um, It's been a pleasure and uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me back, Natalie. Um, We should do a a Q and a or something and, you know, get, 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 see how people's response and, and if there's any more questions or we didn't clarify things or I just kind of went too far above, then we can figure that out. Perfect. Thank you so much. And yes, opportunities for Q's and A's. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.